From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. The riot on the Capitol building in the last days of Trump's presidency was a powerful inflection point in an era of racial reckoning. In its wake, many pundits and politicians declared that this is not America. Our guest, ACLU Deputy Legal Director Jeff Robinson, would disagree. The image of a Confederate flag paraded through the halls of the Capitol or cries to disavow an election with high Black voter turnout is America. It's just not the America that we like to talk about. In this episode, we'll speak with Jeff about how building a more equal nation must be rooted in dealing with the racist policies, practices, and attitudes that were calculated to keep people of color at a disadvantage. We'll also talk about the ACLU's multi-year plan to tackle some of those racist policies. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here, Molly. Thank you for having me. Jeff, before we get into the big questions about race in this country and how to tackle the problem, I wanted to talk first about how you personally got into this work. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, when you grew up, and how it informed some of the work that you do today and how you've come to this work? I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I was born in 1956. So, I think one thing to note is that the civil rights movement is not something that I read about in a book. It was something that I was living when I walked out the front door of my parents' home or family's home as I was growing up. My older brother and I integrated a Catholic school in Memphis in 1963. I was starting in the second grade and he was starting in the third grade. And so we saw the civil rights movement through the eyes of Memphis, Tennessee, and the Deep South. And when Dr. King came to Memphis in 1968, I was 11 years old, and I was old enough to know that something special was going on. And my dad took me to court to see the hearings of people that were arrested in a march that occurred, actually, it was exactly one week before King was killed. And there were a bunch of people arrested, and my dad took me to court to see some of their hearings. And I saw, seemingly coming out of nowhere, these people called criminal defense lawyers. And they were arguing about the right to protest and police brutality. And I was just amazed. And I said to my dad, who are those guys? So he immediately started in saying, well, first you got to get good grades in high school. And I'm like, that ain't happening. And then he says, you got to go to college for four years and get good grades are there. And I'm like adding up the years. And then he says, you got three more years for law school. And I'm 11 years old. I'm adding this up. And it's like, I'll be 25 when I get out of school. That's like ancient. I I can't do that. But I think what I can look back on is that from that day, I almost always ended up being a criminal defense lawyer. And that's all I wanted to be when I went to law school. And so I was a public defender. And then 27 years in private practice because For one thing, issues of race are always present in the criminal legal system. And so my career was really directed toward dealing with that issue in the criminal legal system and being the best criminal defense lawyer I could be. 
And did you feel like you had successes in terms of your goals, but also were there limitations in being a criminal defense lawyer? Definitely had huge successes. There are people walking around today in jobs with families because they are not in prison. Uh, There are people who went to prison, who came out because they had the support of their families and lawyers who were willing to continue to work with them. So the successes were enough to sustain me through 34 years of practice in criminal defense. But I recognize that there is a limited amount that you can do working in the criminal legal system. And and let me be clear, I am not for one second detracting from the contributions of criminal defense lawyers, especially those criminal defense lawyers who are acting as public defenders, because they are the backbone of any chance at justice in the criminal legal system. I'm simply saying that one of the things that I came to realize is that if I fixed every single problem in the criminal legal system, fixed every single procedure, we would fill up the jails and prisons again like that with virtually the same people. And what I also realized is if you fix racism, there's a whole lot of other shit that gets fixed at the same time. And so I just felt like I was ready to try and take a bigger swing at issues of race. And that's what ended me up at the ACLU. And I'm curious, when you saw what happened on January 6th, knowing what you know about race in this country, what went through your mind as you watched the images from the Capitol start to stream in? Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. This is not the first time that a mob of white supremacists has tried to overturn an election where Black voters played a major role in the outcome. In 1874, in New Orleans, a white mob took over the city, essentially, and federal troops had to be brought in because they were upset at a slate of people who had been elected there in the city that included Black folks and folks who were about racial justice and racial equality. And they held that city for three days until the federal troops arrived and put the duly elected members back into power in the city of New Orleans. It didn't work that time. But in 1898, in Wilmington, North Carolina, it did work. And a white mob overthrew the local government, killed Black folks, 1,400 Black citizens of Wilmington, North Carolina, fled the city. There was literally a coup. And the people that led the coup took over the city government, started getting rid of laws that had been passed to promote racial justice, and started outlining laws that were essentially right in the heart of Jim Crow. And so it worked that time. January 6th was simply at least the third time that an attempt like that has happened. And so It connected to the other attempts to me because just like in the other attempts, what was frightening were the number of Black people exercising the right to vote 
When I saw what was happening on January 6th, I thought, those people are so afraid of Stacey Abrams. Because look what happened in Georgia. There is a senator who is a Black man who was a minister at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Just wrap your mind around that and how extraordinary that is, even though they were removing mailboxes in Black communities so you couldn't mail your vote in, even though they were closing down polling places in Black communities so it would be more difficult to get to a place where you could vote, even though they were doing all kinds of tactics to suppress the Black vote. Look what Stacey Abrams and the other women and men who were working in Georgia did. So what I saw on January 6th were acts of desperation. People who are desperate behave in the manner that you saw on January 6th. And why are they desperate? Because they see the possibility of this whole frame of white supremacy beginning to crumble. And so did you think they were just going to sit in their living rooms and sip tea and think all of the advantages of our life are going away and we're just not going to do anything about it? So I was horrified. I was upset, but I was not surprised. A lot of news outlets, as they reported out what happened on January 6th, explicitly named white supremacy in their coverage. Do you think that that was a turning point in some ways? While it was called out on January 6th more than in the past, I guess part of my reaction, Molly, is they had to call it out. They had no choice but to call it out. I mean, we all saw what we saw. It does seem that by naming it is the first and being explicit about naming it, that is the very first step in addressing it. And until you name it, as long as you're calling it something else, like upset about wealth inequality, upset about this, that, and the other, until you name white supremacy, you cannot address it. I think that's true. And I think it's a problem that our country has had. It's the reason that when you look at issues of racial justice, our country seems to be in this continual path of three steps forward, four steps backward, two steps forward, three steps backward, three steps forward, maybe only two steps backward this time. But it's this inability to move forward in a continual and real way. And I think part of that is because we fail to deal with the root cause of the problems. So if George Floyd gets lynched on essentially national television, the equivalent of it in terms of videos, people seeing it live. When that happens and people say, oh, we need to pass a law that deals with chokeholds and you can't choke people. We look at what we think is the problem right in front of us and we come up with a solution to that problem. You can't use chokeholds anymore. And then we pat ourselves on the back saying we've solved it. That was not the problem. And I remember when we started working together, I think in the summer of 2017 was the summer of another spate of just incredible police brutality and deaths as a result. And I remember we were filming the response and 
it was overwhelming. It was almost too much to ask you to do that because it was just one after another. And exactly like we had commissions, we had use of force rules, and we ended up in exactly the same place. It felt like every summer. I mean, it was just like an annual event that you and I would meet back and respond to the police brutality and nothing felt different. And maybe and this Molly, time that's is the different. Problem. I know. Well, that's the problem because that's our experience together as co-workers over the last couple of years. But this is the experience in America for the last couple of centuries. And so part of the inability to solve a problem is a failure to recognize what it really is. If you have a headache and you're taking ibuprofen, you're fine. If you have a brain tumor and you're taking ibuprofen, you're going to end up in the cemetery. And America has been prescribing and taking headache medicine for what is cancer. And we've been doing that for our entire history. And I think folks are finally waking up to the fact that we can't do it anymore. I mean, I also think speaking particularly in the connection between January 6th and the law enforcement response, they were terribly unprepared, even though those who rioted were very open about their plans to riot on social media. And yet, in contrast, in June of 2020, we saw almost a militarized response to protesters and the use of rubber bullets and tear gas to clear the path for Trump to walk down the street. How do you reckon with those two images? Once again, meet the new boss same as the old boss. This is simply what has been happening time and time and time again in America. But this time, we're all being forced to look at it in a different way. So think back to June when Black Lives Matter protesters were in Washington, D.C., and they were out after the curfew. What did you get for being out after the curfew? You got billy clubs, you got arrested, you got incredibly aggressive police enforcement of that curfew. And I sat on January 6th and watched as the curfew rolled by 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, people still out in the streets and the police were basically just watching them. And at some point, they started to kind of nudge him away. But there was no use of force. There was no get off the street right now. There was no aggressive use of their equipment. And so you have to ask yourself, what's the difference? And you have to ask yourself, why is it that we're finally looking at the FBI reports from several years ago talking about white supremacists infiltrating police departments. And we see on active police officers, not on duty police officers, but police officers that are currently in their jobs taking time off to go to Washington, D.C. I do want to talk for one second about something else that happened January 6th that was in contrast, for example, to law enforcement taking selfies with some of the riders. And that's what happened with Officer Eugene Goodman, who led the mob away from the Senate chamber and was chased after by that mob. And I'm curious, do you think his actions speak to a broader point about Black Americans in the face of systemic racism? I think that there are many people in America who at some level are really afraid of what will happen if Black people 
get equity and equality and power in America. I think they're afraid because they've heard the news. They know that America is becoming blacker and browner every year. And I believe that there is a basic fear that some people have of if they get control and power, they're going to do to us what we did to them. And that's what people have never understood about the Black community in this country. And I say this speaking about a community, not about individuals. Black Americans have never asked for revenge. Back in 1865, at the end of the Civil War, the Secretary of War and General Sherman met with 20 freed Black men in Savannah, Georgia. They knew that the North was going to win the Civil War. And they're meeting with these freed Black men saying, okay, what is it you want? And what they said was, just give us land. And here's who's going to work it. The women, the children, and the old men. Because the young men are going to go into service for the government and serve in any capacity in which they are requested to serve. That's after 246 years of slavery in the country and the colonies. That's what Black people wanted, not revenge, but just a place to be accepted as equals in this country with the same opportunity. And so, in my view, the actions of that officer on January 6th were some of the most patriotic things that you could ever look to. And ask yourself this question, why did he risk his life to save the Senate? People in that room who were trying to destroy and take away the right of Black people to vote in this presidential election, trying to wipe our votes off the ballot. And that man took one look down the hallway at where that open door to the Senate was. And he could have chosen, I'm going to protect myself. He made a deliberate decision to lead that mob away from the senators who were trying to take away the Black community's votes because he had that much faith in America. What you're saying reminds me of an article that Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote, and the title says it all. She said, Our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. Black Americans have fought to make them true. And I think that that is so well-represented in what Officer Eugene Goodman did that day. Absolutely. He was not being defended by a fairly large share of his own Congress in defending the right for largely Black Americans to be able to vote and have their vote counted, and yet he risked his life to make sure that that process could see fruition and that the transfer of power could happen. And so I think one of the critical things that comes out of that is a recognition that Asking America to deal with its history of white supremacy and to recognize how deeply that is ingrained in our founding documents and in our behaviors. Asking America to do that is an act of love. If you love that person, you tell them the truth without recognizing why we got here. We will be solving for problems that don't solve the main problem. And that's the cycle that we've been in. And we are finally at a place where it seems like we've got a chance to break out of it. 
Well, I'm curious to have us talk more about that. What does that look like in actual policy reform? The ACLU has just announced a multi-year campaign, and it's called Systemic Equality. And it seems like that campaign is designed to address exactly what we're talking about, but in real, actionable terms. Can you tell us a little bit about where the campaign came from and what its goals are? It's interesting because I think the evolution of this campaign is, in a microcosm, the evolution of what could happen in America. This campaign started as an idea to make one request of the Biden administration, one request for their first hundred days, and that was to support and pass H.R. 40 the bill for reparations for Black Americans for slavery and its vestiges. People thought about that and talked about that and said, you know, that's not enough. People kept talking. And they said, asking for this as a 100-day request is minimizing the importance of what's going on here. And so from a one-ask 100-day request, we now have a program that we are rolling out this month called Systemic Equality that is a program that is going to inform every bit of work the ACLU does in all 14 of our different legal areas where we have projects working. And I think that is something that is remarkable because there are three reasons or three, I think, pillars that we're thinking of. Reconciling the past, increasing access and building prosperity. And reconciling the past is what you and I have been talking about, exposing the way that white supremacy is in our constitution, in the laws that we have passed, and in the behaviors, both political, legal, and social, that we have engaged in in this country. Reconciling that past brings us to a place where we can actually look at how we got here and then fix it. When we're talking about increasing access, we're talking about access both internally in organizations and externally in America. So we're talking about how you can racially diversify talent pools for people who are coming into an organization. We're talking about using internships and fellowships in intentional ways to get candidates who bring lived experience into organizations. We're talking about in the sort of world broadly, we're talking about issues like broadband access. Why is it with the world as it is right now, People think everybody in America has internet access. And of course, they don't. We got issues about building prosperity. So we're talking about student debt. We're talking about postal banking. Many people say, what the hell is that? And the laws that created the post office actually allow for the post office to provide many financial services. And in underserved communities where banking is not readily available, having those services at the post office is literally life-changing. And Jeff, I want to stop you right there just on that example. This isn't just making it so that banking is more accessible or the internet is more accessible. It's also correcting for, as I understand 
understand it, policies that have been put in place since our founding to disadvantage Black people. So this isn't just like, let's give a little more access. This is just evening out the inequalities and inequities that have been built into the system. Is that accurate? Exactly. And what we saw when the Voting Rights Amendment was rolled back was that in the next three years, out. 13 states in the South started passing restricting voting laws. Right. That's the post-racial so, world that I'm sure they had in mind. Exactly. And so I think the point is that there are two things going on. Excellent social policy looking forward that takes into account or that is built so that it is designed to ensure that black and brown people have the same access as white people going forward. Those are excellent things. We need more of them every single day. They do nothing to deal with the circumstances that we are living in right now. And without a recognition that our policies, our actions, and our behaviors have led us to that point. Without that kind of recognition and that kind of repair or reparation, then we are going to be looking at a continued wealth gap in America, a continued gap between Black and white America in every political, social, and economic realm that you can think of. And that's just not acceptable anymore. And I'm curious, how does voting fall into this campaign? How does empowerment play a role? So we have equality, we have reckoning, and then what else? People have always said, well, the South is full of red states. And my response is, we don't know that. And what we just saw in Georgia is a good example of that. What happens if all the Black people in the South have access to voting without these restrictions that make it so difficult for people to vote? What happens if one million people in Florida get the right to vote back? I'm not saying all those people will vote Democratic. And just for clarity, I assume you're talking about the attempt in Florida that ultimately, sadly, has temporarily failed to restore voting rights to those who were formerly incarcerated. That's right. And I will agree with you that it has stalled, but I won't even say failed because this is an ongoing fight and the victory is in sight in my view. But I think that as we start addressing these issues, as we start building power in the South through the ACLU Southern Collective, a group of affiliates in the South that are coming together to work jointly on issues like voting, we may find out in the next 10 years whether the South is red or not, because it may not be. And if everybody can vote, if everybody can exercise that right, I think we may find America in a significantly different place. And that's why people are so afraid of everybody being able to vote, because they know what may happen. As you start to address the racial wealth gap, as you start to address reparations and reconciling with our past, it would seem that empowerment rises. And once empowerment rises, the racial wealth gap closes. And they're all interconnected. And I think one interesting thing about the campaign is that it seems to recognize that you cannot take these apart, that they must rise as a tide. This is why I am thrilled with the internal thinking at the ACLU about going forward in this way, because what people have committed to is using 
all of our tools. That means advocacy. That means litigation. It means addressing practices and cultures internally at the ACLU so that we can be a model for other organizations who are trying to wrestle with these same issues. You know, look, we're a 101-year-old organization, and we have our own issues that we have to struggle with. But I see the systemic equality platform as one of the ways that you can see the ACLU is taking steps to try and bring itself into alignment with what we know we have to do if we are actually going to take America forward on the issue of racial justice. That's a process. Of course, missteps will happen. But if we focus on the heart of the issue, what started our problems in America, what was our nation founded on, and how can we eliminate those elements in as many areas of American life as we can. And when I say those elements, I mean the WS word again, white supremacy. And that's the path that the ACLU and other organizations are on. And Jeff, one piece of this conversation that is harder to talk about is that you personally are going to be on this path, but not at the ACLU. Can you tell us what's happening? Where are you going? What are you doing? At the end of last year, I had a conversation with Anthony Romero, the executive director who brought me to the ACLU. And I told him that I was going to be leaving the ACLU to start an organization called the Who We Are Project. About nine years ago, I started a personal journey because of family reasons at looking into the truth about our history. I've had one of the best educations in America. I went to Marquette University and to Harvard Law School. And I started finding out in my 50s facts about our history, facts about our relationship to white supremacy, facts about how racism was embedded into our culture, facts that I had never heard before. And I was shocked. And I started giving presentations about this. And the presentation evolved into about a three-hour presentation called Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America. And a couple of years ago, a woman named Sarah Kunstler, who is the daughter of the civil rights lawyer William Kunstler, and also a lawyer in New York, she saw the presentation, she and her sister Emily have a film company called Off Center Productions, and they said this needs to be a documentary. And that film is one asset of the Who We Are project. And that project, if I could put it into one sentence, the goal of that project is to correct the narrative on America's history of racism and white supremacy in the next five years. And so I have felt passionately about this issue my entire career and the opportunity to start this project at this moment is just something that I couldn't turn away from. 11-year-old you in Memphis in that courtroom, who knew where this would all end up? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You thought 25 was a long time. Getting through school come a long way. This has been... uh, a great, 
uh, five and a half years at the ACLU. I am thrilled with the direction the organization is taking. And as I've said to you personally, Molly, I ain't going to be hard to find. And the ACLU is doing work where a focus on educating people about the past will be a critical part of the work. So the Who We Are Project and the ACLU together and with other organizations, I think have the opportunity to do great things in America. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.